Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am here with the one and only Jared Roden. With some of my guests, I try to guess their middle name, and I'm going to try to do that with you because I don't know your middle name, and so I'm going to try to guess it. Okay. Hey, are you ready? I think I'm ready. Is your Well, what does it start? Can I have what it starts with? The letter it starts with? That's a big ask, but I'll, go, I'll play along. All right. What does the middle initial start with or the middle name start with? D. Jared Dwayne Roden. <laughs> Is it Dwayne? It's not Dwayne. <laughs> okay. Oh, you don't have to reveal it if you don't feel like revealing it, but I really felt like Dwayne was the right answer. That was a big miss. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, Jared is playing with the orchestra this week, and uh, as many of you know who have been listening to the podcast for a while, um, here, do you want this thing? Because that'll make, that'll make noise. Um, as, you, as many of you know... Um, I've been doing these Freeway Philharmonic uh, episodes about asking people who have uh, great freelance careers um, about how they did it. And uh, I usually do them over the phone, but Jared insisted that if I interviewed him, that we should do it live when he's here. So that's what we're doing. Uh, I don't know. Hopefully the live aspect is okay for everybody. Um, it'll be a little more meandering, a little less to the point than the regular episodes are, but it uh, should be pretty fun. So, Jared, thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, allowing me to speak with you on this Thursday afternoon. So far, it's been my pleasure. So far. We'll see. I'll ask you that question again at the end. And we'll see if it is still uh, your pleasure. Um, anyway, let's just start with what you do as a freelancer um, or what you have done recently uh, and what it looks like and... You know, it could be the typical stuff, what we think about freelancer, what what groups you play with, um, what other kind of freelancing opportunities you might have around the Indianapolis area where you live. And then obviously you're, you're playing with other orchestras and stuff like we are here. And so just kind of a general overview of what you do uh, in your freelancing career right now. Well, I live in Indianapolis. I teach at uh, Butler University. So I have some students there that I take care of on a weekly basis and other things that go along with, you know, being an adjunct at a college. Yeah. And, and I'm a principal trombone of the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra, which is a real orchestra, but it doesn't have a huge schedule in terms of number of productions. There's about eight cycles in a year. And since it's a chamber orchestra, the trombone is not involved in every single one because yeah. they do, you know, some Baroque stuff and things like that. But it's a fair amount. And I've been, had the opportunity to be a soloist with the orchestra twice. So that was good. What would you, what trombone solo would you play with a chamber orchestra? I did two uh, bass trombone mm. concertos that were written for me. So they were premieres. Oh, uh, cool. One by my buddy Ken Kugler, who lives, resides in, California, Los Angeles, and uh, we were classmates um, at IU and roommates, actually. And he's had a, a nice career out there. He does quite a bit of scoring and writing and, and arranging and orchestrating and all this kind of stuff. And he's a really talented guy. Nice. So but that was quite a while ago when that happened. And then there's a jazz clarinetist in Indianapolis who has a national reputation, uh, Frank Glover. I've never met him. He's heavy. Pretty much, I, I assume everybody knows that I did spend one year. I, people, I, I feel people should know this. I spent yeah. one year. They know that I spent a year in Indianapolis, but what they may not know is the reason I have any relationship with Jared at all is when I first got there, Jared informed me that he had a room for rent. And one of the he he has his house, and then he owns the houses on either side of the house that he owns. Why do why do you why did you do that? Why do you own the houses on either side of you? 
Well, number one, I can pick my neighbors. Yeah, seems like the most important reason to do. Yeah. <laughs> and it just seemed like it was, you know, it's an investment. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's that whole business. So I lived so, next door to Jared for the year that I lived there. And so um, that's part of the reason we have such a good relationship, too, is he basically was the only person I hung out with for my whole year there, which ended up being pretty cool. So um, that's also part of the... You know, as a as a side note, this has nothing to do with the episode that we're doing. But again, it's a live show, so this is how it's going to go down. Is um, that year I spent in Indianapolis? Although it created some some things inside of me that I feel I'm still learning about and dealing with right now. Um, there's a lot of really amazing good that came from it, and that I'm glad. And one of those things I would say is. Uh, just the fact that I'm now talking to you, interviewing you about this kind of thing, it's pretty surreal that this is where we are all these years <laughs> later, you know? I was that, a, that is funny. But uh, anyway, okay, Butler, and you play trombone, principal trombone with the chamber orchestra. That's where we left off. Right, and so I do a lot of subbing. I still sub in the Indianapolis Symphony. You know, I was uh, full-time there for eight years, mm -hmm. including the year you were there. Mm-hmm. And that was nice. Enjoyed that immensely. And, uh, you know, I come down here. I've had the opportunity to play with the Cleveland Orchestra and the Chicago Symphony, Minnesota Orchestra, um, on occasion. Mm -hmm. Not a regular thing, but it's happened a few times. Um, I played music of the Baroque in Chicago for their brass and choral, but also other things that they'll do with uh, the orchestra for like a, you know, a sacred work or an oratorio or um, a mass or something. Yeah, and you've been doing that for a while, right? About 20 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And for 15, I've been going to Grand Teton Music Festival. Yeah, that's Jackson awesome. Hole. Yeah. yeah. And that's really a pleasure. I mean, to be in that environment, but I mean, the quality of the musicianship that you're surrounded with is very high. So yeah. it's, it's just a real enjoying and there's a lot of enjoyment yeah i talked to jay evans about the tetons and what that situation is like when you have principals of major orchestras that are playing like third trumpet or you know in the section in these various uh in these various sections and it, just that that environment exists you know usually uh, one example would be i know chris martin when he goes there doesn't always play principal I'm sure he does play some principle, obviously, but that's just, that's pretty amazing that that kind of environment exists. And it's, it seems from what he said to be just very much about the music and the camaraderie of making the music together and less about kind of people's, this is what I do because this is what I have to do, which probably makes it a lot better of an experience. It, it's the vibe is very good. If people are there, decompress. Yeah get away from their home orchestra. You know, when you're in one situation with all the same people in a very structured environment, you know, that's it's very rules-based and it people it it gets to you. Yeah, it, it, yeah. You know, day in and day out. I would just say weeks it's a grind. And weeks yeah, and weeks. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, despite the fact that you're in this great orchestra and the music making is on a very high level, and you're fortunate to be there and there's there would be a line around the block, you know, if there was an audition for right. any of these spots. You know, the fact that there's any dissatisfaction at all seems weird. Right. To, you know, to an outsider. But when you're on the inside, it's just it's just humans. Being, sure, yeah. You, you and know, you're like so you take cooped a, up on this stage, like yeah. Well, you know, it's a hundred people and they're there. You know, all the time, sitting in the same place, next to the same person, the same person sitting in front of you, and all you know, yeah, and you can't see around them, and you can't <laughs> and, get, a, yeah, you can't get away, know, like a cubicle yeah. where you'd be like blocked off from seeing that person, yeah. like, yeah. so you know, so when people go to festivals, it's just a whole, it's a reset, yeah, kind of, you know? yeah. and so you, you're back to playing just for the enjoyment. And, you know, you get to see fresh faces and people you haven't seen in a long time. Yeah. Just people you've never met before, people you've heard about. And now, you get, now you're sitting next to them and you get to play with them. Right. And, and so the uh, attitude is very 
uh, relaxed in that way, but the expectations musically are very high. Sure, sure. Because, I mean, you know, those kinds of people just don't phone it in. Right, That there's no yeah. off switch probably for them. Right. Yeah. But it's a fresh kind of environment, and it's, uh, so it's nice. It's real nice. Yeah, and I imagine as well, just being at the Tetons, you know, it, it, it's like we could, if you, I think if you took the members of an orchestra and just took them out of their home city and stuck them in the Tetons, even if it were the same people, I still feel like it would probably be an amount of an escape, right? Just because yeah. you're looking at the Tetons the other however many hours of the day and... Well, it's like touring. Yeah, yeah, you know, right. You yeah. go on an international tour and I think everyone, the energy level goes way up. You're playing for different audiences. You're in a different hall every day every other day you know so there's yeah a lot of freshness that definitely gets injected into the it's definitely a weird reality of playing in an orchestra is when i was in school i, I thought oh my gosh this is going to be the most amazing thing in the world and in so many ways it is a real privilege right to get to do what we do but there's also yeah this weird grind part of it where it's kind of like it's your job <laughs> to do this it's not always this um super magical like we are creating, you know, the work of the masters, you know what I mean? These composers, it does kind of feel like a job sometimes. And especially when you're doing different shows in different weeks or, you know, you have one really difficult show and then the next week, another really difficult show. And it becomes about, man, I have these difficult shows back to back. Whereas if you were in school and you were playing this thing for five weeks, you would say, this is great. But now you're thinking, oh my gosh, I have to play these back to back. How am I going to survive? And it becomes more about sort of how you're going to get through this season rather than... Well, just the fact that you're calling them shows. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, That's and, and we all do. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's a... Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a big schedule. Yeah. And things, you know, it just comes at you week after week after week after week. And So this is something I would love to ask you. Um, again, usually with these, I just kind of let the other person talk because it's live. I can actually pick it apart. But um, I think it's interesting to me that you are outside of what we just described, right? You're coming in, mm. you get to play this beautiful music. Like you said, you did a show. I think it was, I don't remember, a couple of years ago where you played Bruckner 7 and Don Juan and Night on Ball Mountain with Chicago. Right. And you're just coming in. They've played Bruckner 7 950,000 times, right? I mean, it's like probably one of their pieces. But you're coming in and you're fresh. And it feels like to me, it would be a really great sort of best of both worlds situation, right? Where you really get to experience the joy of playing these pieces because you're not used to it having played it so many times, but also, yeah, because you're outside of this whole thing, you're just showing up being like, ah, I get to play Bruckner 7, you know? Do you care to comment on, because uh, you played in Torino as well, sort of the differences you feel of how you view the music and view what your relationship is with playing these pieces from having a gig and then now freelancing where you're not maybe as regular with it? Is there a difference in how you feel about your time on the stage? Oh, it's special. Yeah. yeah. And in those particular concerts, you know, it's a great orchestra. Uh, music director was conducting. So there's a special energy with that. And the expectations are very high. I mean, people, they, they come, they want to hear the best. So, you know, the uh, that wasn't lost on me. You know, I was filling some big shoes. Mm -hmm. But it just comes down to what do you know and how do, if you know how to fit in yeah and are you what's the level of your awareness around you and can you just kind of slip in there and just get do the job and so how do you have confidence to do this is something you know because i don't freelance that often i have my job and i sit in the same spot every day and so I know how to play with this. I've learned how to play with this orchestra and to try to make it work to the best I can. But when you're in different orchestras, different sections, different people, how do you, like, what is your, what skill set do you try to develop that allows you to sort of hear outside of yourself? Um, how long do you think, um, or where do you think you developed this? How long do you think it took to, for you to get good at it? And then maybe also 
how do you then sit in that job and sort of say, this is how I do it because I want to sound my best, but also at the same time, trying to do it their way too. I mean, that's a lot of questions. And if you just want to kind of roll with that. Well, my teacher in high school, Gerhard Schmeltikov in in Chicago. (laughs) What? (laughs) He was my teacher in high school. Great player. You know, he was a Kleinhammer student. Did a lot of work around Chicago. <laughs> and uh, he just told me, he just said, just, it's a function of how well you can listen mm. and, and discern and and be able to recognize what people are doing and do that. Yeah. That's, just fit in. But how do you, how do we develop this? You know well, what I mean? Just by doing it or is there is there a way you can actively develop it? Well, you play a lot of chamber music. You learn how to imitate people. You understand the music so you know what you're listening for. Sure, yeah, yeah, that's a big so one. If you're going to play a big symphony like that, I mean, you have to really know it. So, so you're not guessing at anything. You know, yeah, you, know right. you know what the chords are. You know what the harmony is. You know how to temper and adjust your notes. And I grew up there, so you know, I've heard that orchestra hundreds of times right i have almost all the recordings i i know how they play right right you know so they're this is chicago and this right and i've studied with those guys you know and so yeah i i maybe had an advantage in the sense that you know somebody that just came from i don't know you know ecuador It just, they sat him down there and then said, go, man. I mean, might not have some of that familiarity. I don't know. So, so what, I mean, I'd played with him before, so I mean, it wasn't, sure, you know, yeah. it wasn't that scary. But that's you scary. now. That's you yeah. now, right? So right. one of the things I try to do is deconstruct how, okay, the way you would ask this question then is, what would you tell yourself, at, like, remembering back? what it was like, how, what would you tell yourself then based on what you know now? That's the way to ask that question. That's a good question. I mean, part of it, you just have to, you just have to live it. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't know you can tell like a, a you know, 15-year-old kid, just do these three things and, you know, and it's easy street from here on out. Yeah, you know? right, right. I mean, you just have to get out there and, and try it, mm-hmm. you know. But most of it has to have to do with your attitude. You know, you can't ever just like barge your way into some situation thinking like, you know, you're all, it's all about you. Sure. You know, you just have to fit in. You have to like try to recognize what they're doing and just do that. Be a chameleon. Yeah. And and, uh, don't overplay. Always be able to hear somebody. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of an innate ability. I think you just have to, well, it's not an innate ability. You can learn it. You know, I think most people do, right? Yeah, I, I don't think. Yeah. I, I think maybe we have band class when we're young, and we're not. We're listening, sort of, maybe. Um, but I think, at least, you know, when I studied with uh, in my undergrad and my graduate, my graduate t- uh, schooling, it was pretty hammered in that there are certain things that will make you successful. You know, like the stuff you're describing, listening and being aware. And then what I've known now too is this: what I wish I would have done more of is. That, that score study, you know, and, and just knowing. It's not even about having the information just to say you have it. It's that confidence that comes from total knowledge that you know I have the same note lengths as this person, so I'm going to key into that. Or I'm playing, I'm accompanying the violins here. So for you as a sub, coming in, if I feel that that knowledge, whether it's through score study or in listening or whatever it is, allows you to say, oh, I know what the principal trombone has, or I know what the principal trumpet has. And so I'm well, playing had, chamber music with somebody. Yeah. I mean, I had the, I mean, I don't know if it's an advantage. I mean, I've lived a long time and I have a lot of experience. So, yeah, and it, it wasn't a novel experience. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a big job. When you get right down to it, you're just like playing chords and, right. <laughs> you know, matching note lengths and styles of articulation and balancing and blending. And Did it ever cross know. your mind that 
I mean, it probably didn't cross your mind that you're, you would think to yourself, oh, I'm not sure I can do this because you've done it, right? But I can imagine some people getting called. I feel like if I got called to play in Chicago, I'd be like, can I do this? You know, am I, quote, ready? Is there a point at which you feel that a person can progress to where they, you could say if you have these certain abilities that you're, even if you don't necessarily feel ready, you're going to be able to be okay. Like, is there an amount of skill needed or is it literally just like you work your way up the ranks of I'm playing in school that I'm playing and maybe not as, you know, not as high up their ensembles, constantly honing the skills. I think that's a highly individual well, that's kind good. of circumstance. I mean, okay, that's I mean, fair. Some, some, some people are just uh, more ready at an early age. Sure. You know, their personality, their training, their adaptability, their level of confidence. I mean, some people are very young. I mean, really young people are winning jobs. Right, right. You know, and so, yeah, I would say that it's not an impact pediment at all i think it's uh i think in some just, ways it's good you know yeah. i mean i think that's why it's they do so well is there's an amount of malleability right you're not coming in saying this is how it goes i know what's going on and i think we think that's what they want but the evidence is the opposite the evidence is that people who um play really 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 well uh, but I feel like are not like I am so far over to the right or so far over to the left. There's sort of right. Barbara would call it mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. And there's like then an amount of malleability that comes with that. They say, oh, like they play the trumpet in our case, the trumpet so well. And they're not too crazy with their interpretations. I bet you that they'll put that out there and then we'll either follow that or they play well enough that they can match like what's going on. This is a whole different topic with auditions and stuff like that. But it certainly applies to being successful as a freelancer, especially when you're being put in positions of I'm playing with the Cleveland Orchestra, the Chicago Symphony. You know, being successful in that thing can feel like everything's going to ride on your first time this one moment, you know? You make some sort of mistake and all of a sudden it's just like it's over with, right? But I imagine the stuff you're talking about, matching note lengths, blending, always being able to hear somebody, even with a few mistakes here and there, those are the things that are going to get you called back over just playing perfectly, right? Right. They're, they're risk takers. You know, anybody can miss a note. I mean, if you're, if you're playing in any of those big orchestras, I mean, if, if you do it all the time, that's one thing, <laughs> yeah. but, you know. But everybody's going to miss a note. You're going to go for something and nothing's going to come out. I mean, it, it does happen. It happens to the best of people. Yeah. Not very often, but, you know, it can happen. But what what's not tolerable is just being oblivious yeah. to what people are doing. You know, playing too loud is usually the problem. Or, you know, not playing up enough or being behind or coming in early and not feeling the rhythm and be played together. So, you know, it's all yeah. the, the basic stuff, you know, in tune, in time, all that kind of stuff. But, yeah. you know, but you're in a big organism, you know, you're in a hundred piece orchestra and every hall has a different kind of acoustic and every orchestra responds to the impetus from the conductor a little bit differently. So you really have to be aware of what's happening. Sure. And, and so that's a big thing. You told me about this when you played with Chicago. I, I, I used to pick Jared's brain a lot more about this kind of thing. I'd say, well, what's the difference between like Chicago and here, you know, specific to my playing? Like, what do you think I need to add to my playing? And one of the times you had just played with Chicago is this time I'm talking about with Bruckner 7. I asked you, what's the difference between a place like Alabama and a place like Chicago? And I'd love for you to uh, discuss that for a second because I think it really changed the way I, I think about my approach, you know, because it's so simple and it seems like we all feel feel like we're doing this. But when, when you put it the way you're about to talk about it, it, it's so crazy to me because I feel like if I'm doing that and then you say, oh, this is the difference. And then I think, well, I'm already doing that. It's clear I'm not doing it as much as I think I'm doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. If you want to roll with, like, like, kind of talk about what the difference is, what makes Chicago so special, and from your time there. 
Well, it, I'm sure it's the same in every great orchestra. Well, using Chicago but, as an example. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. It, details. Yeah. You know, it's the, you know, how many dynamics between piano and four Ps, how many levels of attack, how many different kinds of accents, how many, you know, do you really hear a difference between mezzo piano and mezzo forte? You know, does the color of this, when does the color of the sound start change between forte and fortissimo? Yeah. All those sort of things. It, so my experience was that it's on the page, you hear it. So it's, it's uh, a lot of people, you see all this stuff written down and you think you're doing it, but is it audible? Right. Yeah. The thing. And my experiences with these top orchestras is there's, everything's audible, mm -hmm. you know, all the f little m m tiny minute things, you hear them, you hear all of them. So it, it's a really wide broad palette of expression. There's yeah. so much possibility that, and the great conductors are able to communicate what it is they need, you know, so, and you hear all this stuff. So it, it is, it was very obvious very quickly that like, oh yeah, all this stuff matters. Yeah. And that seems like as good a place to start as any, right? When you're, if you get your music and you're playing with some sort of group uh, or, or really anything, but let's just say in this freelancing scenario, like one of the first good places to start would be, you know, making sure you're aware of all the little details. So when that could be the simplest form of preparation. So when you show up and you're playing third trumpet on some piece with some orchestra you've never played with before, you know, they're hearing that you're doing the details and then they can say immediately they've made their decision about you, which is this guy shows up prepared or this woman shows up prepared. They know what's going on. They're doing the details. We don't have to ask them to do the details. And what I've learned on my side of it is the person I want to hire is the person I don't have to talk to, you know, that I don't want to have to coach somebody into playing the way I'm happy to, you know, I'm happy to give a couple comments here and there, especially if someone's never played with the orchestra before but I just don't want to have to tell somebody how to play in an orchestra. I would like somebody to know. And that usually is the difference is just the details, not only in terms of their own page, but then, yeah, note lengths or balance and stuff. Well, the thing people say a lot is that was easy. Yeah. So yeah, you know, yeah. it's hard enough just to, you know, play your own part. And then if you feel like you got to be like dragging somebody along, that doesn't help anything. So everybody wants to come, enjoy the music, put on a great concert, and uh, and not have to really break a sweat. Sure, no, that's a good. Yeah. That's a really sort of succinct way of sort of codifying what it is to be a good freelancer. You know, I mean, in the simplest terms possible, I suppose. Um, I wanted to talk about that for a little bit, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about as well. This is when I interview these people for the, the freelancing thing, a lot of people I find, I've learned, they have this sort of other thing <laughs> that they do. So most of the time when we think about freelancing, it's I got, I'm playing these gigs with these people. I'm playing, you know, maybe quintet gigs or church gigs, or I'm going to play with, you know, sub with orchestras and stuff. And uh, Jared has a whole nother side to his life. As a freelancer, I would not call it, you know, it's not the same as freelancing on the trombone, but it certainly allows him to have an income. And I'm just going to let you kind of go for a little while and explain what this other side is, kind of how it came about, why you felt like it was sort of an important thing. Just sort of bring us there and tell us the story of Wood and Rodin. Well, you know, Bob, Bob Wood, second trumpet in the Indianapolis Symphony. You know him well. You sat next to him. Mm -hmm. And um, and I are great friends. And if he had been, we're, at that time, we were both just freelancing, just playing shows and gigs and recording gigs and concerts and, you know, the whole gamut of stuff that you do when that's your life. Like you do. Like you do. <laughs> and a... And a And, well, I mean, this, this this is available for everybody, you know, everybody that is out there doing stuff at some point or other is asked to put something together or something. Hey, can you get some guys together to do this? 
hey, you know, we need a quintet for Easter. Hey, would you like to do this? Would you like? And so everybody does this, you know, on some level. And some people do, you know, more than others. And and I suppose there's some people that just don't really want to bother with that because, it, you know, it's a big responsibility and there's lots of hassle that goes along with it. But, you know, if you get good at it, you know, it could grow. And that's kind of what happened to us. We started doing just little things with brass groups and whatnot. And um, we had an opportunity. Indianapolis is peculiar in the sense that, you know, it's just not a big city. So sort of a big city. I mean, it's a metropolitan area of a million or so people, I guess. Really? Yeah. I thought it was bigger than that. The yeah. whole area? It's like 1.2 okay. or something like that. All right. I think. I don't know. And uh, we have a couple, about three recording studios that are fairly large rooms or that hold, you know, 50, 50 or maybe a little bit more people. And so there had been, and this happened before I even moved there, there was, you know, sort of a scene. Then there were a bunch of smaller project studios. There used to be jingles and stuff, all that kind of stuff. But I think most anybody would tell you the jingle biz is gone altogether. Mm. And uh, Jingles being like little things for like commercials. Yeah, or... radio, TV commercials, that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. There used to be quite a lot of that. Um. There were some cities where there was a ton of it. I know Dallas and Chicago both had a huge jingle scene. And uh, and there was a kind of a more localized kind of scene in Indianapolis. I mean, I, I don't think they were doing like big national accounts, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you got your car dealers and, you know, local supermarkets and whatever, you know. So there was a fair amount of that. And so we were in the scene and, uh, and some guys, some engineers kind of went off on their own and they're going to build their own place. And since we were known quantities and they were going to have some accounts um, to do mostly kind of publishing type gigs or, uh, you know, kind of mom and pop type of recordings and, you know, custom albums and this kind of thing. So, you know, they asked us, you know, would you like assemble these groups that we're going to need? And so we said, well, yeah, okay. So we did. And it grew. I'd like to say we did a good job. And so it kind of grew into something that yeah. you know, keeps us sort of busy. And so we're working on that constantly. So there's always something to work on. And we'll do book, you know, shows and tours and things like that. And, yeah. And church gigs, lots of church gigs. But, uh, there's, it's mostly the Presbyterians and Episcopalians that like to use instrumental music, you know, kind of a classical bent to play that kind of music. And so we assemble groups for, for things that they need. Yeah. And uh, so, so you, you just noticed that you were already doing it. We could just do it a little bit more, <laughs> you know, like it wasn't right. a, because I feel like sometimes some of these ideas I've heard of are born out of uh, either some work has dried up and we need to find something else to do or, you know, I have, I've moved to a new place and I don't know anything. But for you guys, it seems like it just sort of was a natural evolution of things that you were already working on. Yeah, it was kind of an organic thing. Which you know, we, how, were, we were plugged in to the scene yeah. anyway and people knew us and this opportunity came along. And, and so we just used that to just kind of, you know, take a step up and work on a bigger scale. Yeah. And, and then that continued to grow. And we talked before the episode started, like I'm not really interested in numbers of anything. There is actually only one number I'm interested in and is like about how many musicians do you then provide contracting for? I mean, like an approximate number. Well, when we send out tax stuff, I mean, I think we're sending, we probably use 300 different people. Yeah, that's so... In a, that's, in a year's time. Yeah, yeah, it ends up being now you guys are providing, you know, it's like a good thing for the musical community in Indianapolis that you guys kind of decided, oh, let's just do it a little bit more, you know? Like, it's worth mm -hmm. the work, it's worth the effort to do it. I'm sure it is work and effort. It's not just... Well, it's, I, yeah, it, it's time-consuming, and it's, 
And it's painstaking because the level of detail is really high. And you and Bob like have different roles, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So is Bob like the painstaking detail guy? I, from what I understood, he's that. And then you just do most of the finding of the people and the contracting. And Well, I do most of that kind of work. I do like uh, the organizational stuff, um, talking to the, uh, the clients, if you want to call them that. Yeah, yeah. You know, get the details, schedule. You know, we provide an uh, estimated budget for them and... You know, and then we just—it's just a refining process from where it's just an idea till it's like, okay, we have like enough intelligence here, we can do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've got enough info. Now it's time to, you know, so you try to get things rolling a couple of months ahead of time if you can, because everybody's busy. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you want to get the people you want, you know, you got to get them early because everybody yeah. wants them. You no, know? I just—I think this is such a cool thing because I don't think anybody would start and they would think, well, I'm going to start my own company, you know? I think that that's too big of a leap for many people to take, probably you guys included, but that you sort of had this middle space of we were looking yeah. for groups. I just think that's how ideas like this come about, is you sort of see an opportunity in the, in the frame of what you're already doing or things that you already care about. Maybe it's not exactly the same thing you're doing. In your case, it was very similar. But in my case, something like podcasting is, it's outside of the realm of what I normally do, but it's still within the realm of music, right? So it's just taking a slight sidestep and saying, I'll learn about this other thing that we could, that I could possibly offer. I think that's like, how all ideas like this start, you know? They just start as an idea. Maybe we could do this. Let's see what happens. And then as long as you stick with it over the course of a long period of time, that's when you start to see success. Right. So we just kind of, this was just like operating on my dining room table, you know? Mm -hmm. it, everything happened, you know, at his house or at my house. Then at some point we... Uh, um well, you just don't want all that money. Not that it wasn't very much money, but, you know, you just don't want it flowing through your personal checking account. Right, right. You know? So we created an entity, you know, just to kind of segregate, you know, your personal life and your professional sure. life. That, And then at some point we incorporated, you know, we just thought it was a smarter thing to do. And now we have a, a an office space because it just got to be a, a drag having all this stuff spread out all over your house all the time, <laughs> you know, you could never get away from it. Yeah. You know? right. So you would just like kind of, you know, butts with it all the time. You, you know, so it, it was good to get an office space and then just, you can just shut the door. Right. And you just can, go home. Can, yeah. yeah. You can go there, you can work for, you know, several hours and get a bunch of stuff done and then, you know, turn off the lights and yeah. go home and, and enjoy the evening. But you didn't necessarily so, think right out of the gate, we got to go get ourselves an office space. We got to incorporate. I think that's like such an important part of the story though. And and for anybody listening that might find themselves in a position where they think to themselves, I could do something maybe like this or something that's a little bit outside of what they normally do. That the most important part is that none of it really happened from the beginning. It was just an idea. And then they sort of yeah. ran with it, not... Basically, you don't have to have the whole thing figured out right all at once. No, it's evolutionary. And I just, I think that's actually how everything that's yeah. big, like, will happen like that. It, I mean, Apple, Apple computer started like in somebody's garage. Right. You know, okay. So, yeah, I read this story uh, in this book called The Slight Edge. This guy, uh, his name is Jeff Olson. He told the story of how he built like a, re a very large sales force in Germany, right? And he told the story and then he told the story, which is kind of absurd, right? Just the amount of happenstance, random encounters that happened. And then he told the story again, but he told it from the perspective of that he was planning it, you know? So instead of, oh, I met this guy and this guy happened to know this guy. And then that guy was sent me and like, we connected over here and we did this thing. <laughs> he's like telling it like, oh yeah, I'll make this plan. I'll go meet this guy that I've never known before, but he's going to happen to know somebody. And it's a good thing I planned that because then, and you realize the absurdity of like, when you get to the end, the absurdity of all of the little things that had to happen for this thing to come about and that you, you would never be able to plan it from the beginning like that because that's just not how ideas like that work. So I wanted to touch on that a little bit. 
and make sure that people understood that, A, that's a thing that you do, a service you provide, a service that can be provided um, as part of, you know, you play the yeah. trombone, but you also have this business, right? Like it's... Yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, it's time consuming. Yeah. I have, to, I have to work on it constantly. You know, you just... You know, I have, I have got my laptop here. You know, I did a little biz last night. Did a little bit this morning. Mm -hmm. Just stay on top of things, keep things moving in a certain direction. And you know, there's stages of of assembling something and getting it hired. And then there's changes that happen in the middle of it. And then maybe the specifications change, or then maybe like I had a change the night of a rehearsal. And I was like, I had half of the thing hired, and then I had to go back and talk to everybody. Mm -hmm. You know. Even the people that turned it down, you know, I said, well, now we're going to move the rehearsal back a day. Does that, yeah. does that make a difference? Right, you right, know? yeah. Um, and all this. So, I mean, you know, those kinds of things are, I don't know. It's just part of it. Yeah. It, I just, I don't even, it doesn't bother me. It's just like, it's, you just keep working on it until it's done. Yeah. And the idea is it, you're providing this for somebody and you want them in the final analysis to be glad that they spent that money. Right. The, the client in this case, right? right. Yeah. yeah. So, that, you know, so it sounds great. It was a great experience. It wasn't difficult because the difficulty is like mostly on our shoulders. Sure. So they never see any of that stuff. And you don't want them to know about that part either. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, it's like, well, that was easy and I'm glad I spent the money. Yeah, this is another really, I think, important thing to make sure. I talked about this in Jay's episode. I've probably talked about it in other ones, but it's just important to mention, I think, that uh, in the orchestral world, you do your audition, you win your audition, you go through your tenure process, and once you have tenure, that's pretty much it. Like, it's obviously, it's your job unless you really, really, really mess up, right? But in the freelancing world, uh, I think feel like there's more that rides on any given moment. Not necessarily that you're going to make or break your career in one moment, but I think you can you can do a good thing and you can do a bad thing in a moment, if that makes sense. Instead of like in, with tenure, it like takes so much. And so then there's more of this word of mouth, like they did a great job. We want to hire them again, whether it's for playing the trombone in an orchestra or it's this client wants to use you if they need to get some sort of thing recorded again. Well, if they had a great experience with you and it turns out to be high quality, like you've sort of cemented your reputation in that moment, right? Yeah. Well, it's all... And, and then it could potentially be taken away if the flip side, if it was such a horrible experience, they may say, we're never going to use it. And I think it can happen in one shot if it's bad enough. Well, that's true. Yeah. yeah so there's is. just more writing on any given delivery of the product, I think. Well, that, there's an expression. I mean, when it comes to freelancing, I mean, you're only as good as your last gig. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's kind of... I mean, that's probably an overstatement, you know. Yeah, I don't think it necessarily means it's that yes. serious, but I think that mentality is important to have. That's true. So, I mean, some people are seemingly indispensable, you know, because they have certain skills demonstrable, demonstrable skills and they have a history and you know that they're reliable and, you know, they could have an off day or an off month and mm -hmm. you wouldn't be that quick to like make a change. But when you get into the middle, you know, there's like where the demands aren't that difficult or there's, there's, it's largely interchangeable. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got a lot of choices to make for just section players or people that you know will come with a good attitude and do the job and not be a pain and all this sort of stuff. I tell people, I said, this is all I need from you. Show up at least 10 minutes early so I don't have a heart attack. <laughs> Play your ass off, which I know you can do or I wouldn't have asked you Fair. In the first place. Yeah, fair. And at least pretend like you're glad to be there. That's all I want. <laughs> the bar is pretty high. It, I'm just, no, I mean, that for me, that's No, like I was just going to joke, obviously. Yeah, uh, right. I think it's... 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm just trying to provide this idea of full yeah. comprehensive understanding with all of these things that um, in the freelance world, it's more than just how you play. And in the orchestra world, I think that exists too. But once you, you know, get tenure, it's a whole different ballgame, you know? And so for the people who haven't won their gig yet or are not interested in doing that, it's like important to know right out of the gate that your reputation as a person is going to matter almost equally to your reputation as a player, I think. And so, you know, it's like awesome when you come and hang out with the orchestra because it feels easy. You're a pleasant person to be around. But you also, the funniest part about this, I guess, that I'm just realizing is you obviously, you're not having to try to do that either, right? <laughs> I feel like if you're a person who's like, all right, I have to really try to be like a nice person here. Like, we're... <laughs> 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 May not be the thing for you to be. There's maybe other work that needs to happen before we worry so much about freelancing. So maybe it's not as serious of a concern as I'm making it, but it's just worth saying, I think. Well, you see it. I mean, some concerts are, it's easier to have a great attitude because the music's fantastic. And then some concerts or mm. things that are a show, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's not so gratifying and it's... That's and you, very and, true. And when you're in an orchestra, you don't get to choose what you can, what you play and what you don't play. You know, you're in there for the long haul and someone else is deciding what you're going to play this week. And it may not be that fun. It may not be that rewarding, but you have yeah. to show up with a great attitude and get the job done. Yeah. You know, and, uh, at, with as easy as possible. So it's... so. Nobody, you want to lighten the load for everybody. We were talking about this the other day. The multiplier. The multiplier. Yeah. Yeah, I think I first heard that. Uh, it, might, it might have had something to do with sports. I don't know. But it's the same thing is true. I mean, a multiplier is someone that helps to elevate everybody else. Yeah. You know, so they're, not only are they good, they make other people good. Yeah, and I think it's it's a cool mentality to try to carry, especially as a freelancer, because that would be a magnetically attractive quality that you wouldn't be able to put your finger on, right? You wouldn't be able to say that's a multiplier. I mean, maybe you could, but you, would be, you wouldn't be thinking about it in terms of that the same way you would, they got a great sound or they're a nice person. Just feeling like the whole thing is better because this person is here. That's going to get you hired probably forever. Yeah, I would say so. And word of mouth will carry pretty far in that, in that kind of scenario, I think. It's all word of mouth. Yeah, yeah. Everything. Yeah. Okay. I, I think we've exhausted that topic unless you have more you think you want to throw down. Let's, 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 let's advance. Okay. Something else. Well, I don't have much more. I don't have, because it's a single topic thing, but I would like you to tell, uh, I would like you to talk about playing with Frank Sinatra because I just want people to hear your perspective on playing with Frank Sinatra. And I would like you to end the episode with your four points for continued success. Oh, yeah. Jared's four points yeah. of continued professional development. Right, right. But we got to get the Frank Sinatra story in here first because it's just kind of mm. unbelievable that you have the story to me. Well, it was, a, it was a, just a lucky, super lucky thing. I only played with him one time. I, I know people that uh, you know, toured with him and did a bunch of stuff, so I just have this little one-off. But it was... It was... <laughs> New Year's Eve in Las Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we were doing some touring with this uh, singer. And uh, and I don't know if she even knew Frank Sinatra. I don't know. But some of the people, some of her people knew Frank's people and this and that. And so they got this idea that they were going to like do two shows at the Riviera Hotel up in the penthouse and then downstairs in one of these huge ballrooms and then it became obvious at some point it was just going to be too difficult to schlep uh, you know mm, the whole the orchestra yeah, up yeah. and down you know i mean the equipment would could be stationary but all the you know all the musicians and their instruments that go from the penthouse down to the thing and they were both going to play in both uh, rooms or I don't know. It just got complex, and they decided 
we just need another band. <laughs> it's just so the bands have to, you know, stay put. So, you know, through a bunch of contacts, I got hired to do this thing. And, it, you know, this was like getting kind of tight towards New Year's Eve. And so they just couldn't find anybody. Everybody was tied up. Mm -hmm. And so um, I got this opportunity and they brought in a bunch of people from uh, Los Angeles. Charlie Loper played a lead bone. I think uh, Gary Foster was lead alto and flute. I think Rick, Rick Baptiste was the lead trumpet player. Oh, nice. Um, unless it was some other equally famous guy. I don't remember <laughs> now. Um, Saul Gubin was the drummer. And that changed my life. Really? And then, yeah. And then uh, I think the bass player was a guy I had toured with. I think it was Jim Hewart, right? I think the pianist was Terry Trotter, right? I can't remember who the guitarist was. Um, Frank Jr. ran the rehearsals. And so, you know, it's all these great, great arrangements, you know, iconic classic arrangements. And uh, it was really a joy. I mean, his rhythm section was really together. Yeah. yeah. You know, as you, you would, would assume, as you would, yeah. you would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it was a, it was a, you know, big orchestra with strings. I mean, it was like a big band on one side and strings on the other side. So it was an orchestra. And, and uh, so, you know, we never saw Frank until he walked on stage for the show, you know, and, and I don't know if this is like for real stagecraft or not. There was this little table off stage that had like, a bottle of whiskey and an ashtray, you know. And so we were on stage for the whole show and then we leave the stage and like there's two cigar butts in the ashtray and three quarters of the bottle of whiskey is gone. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering, did he really do that? Yeah. Yeah. Or is that, they just do that sort of thing. It's like the know? legend of it. Yeah, yeah. Something. But anyway, so he comes out and it, and, Believe it or not, I mean, this is very late in his career, okay? I mean, he's, you know, he's pretty much done performing. So there was a little bit of cynicism in the back of my head, thinking like, well, you know, his voice is what it used to be, and yeah, he can't hit the high notes anymore, and yeah, this and that. But I'm telling you, it was magic. He came, because all those things were true. I mean, his voice was, you know, not what it was, and... He just used the lyrics and the, his incredible musicianship. He got those songs over. He changed his interpretation of the songs. Wow. You know, from what the classic recordings had been like. And he had everybody in that room in the palm of his hand for the whole show. It was amazing. I mean, he really was a musical giant. And uh, so it was... Do you think he benefited from the clout of who he was in having them in the palm of his hand? Or was it, do you think if he was an unknown entity and then performed like that, it would have been the same result? Do you know no, what I'm no, asking? Cl no, clearly it's because of who he is. Right, right, right. Yeah, so I mean, people are primed to be yeah. wowed. Yeah, yeah they, they're going a... there to have a religious experience, you know. He, but then he gave it to him too. But then he gave it to him. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. So, I mean, they were very receptive to, like, whatever he was going to do. And I'm sure if it wasn't that good, they would have loved it anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so, but I really, yeah, I, I was having the best that's, time of my so life cool. just, just listening to him get those songs over because he really knows those songs. Yeah, been yeah. singing them his whole life, yeah. yeah. I just can't believe you have played with Frank Sinatra on New Year's Eve in Vegas. That's just incredible. But I, Lucky. I, I Lucky. know somebody who has that story. Uh, I think it's a great story. I'm glad that you told it. And uh, to finish out this episode, I think it is very important, considering all we've learned from you, all of the wisdom that you have doled out. So much wisdom. On yeah. everyone. When I was in Indianapolis, Jared uh, informed me that he has four uh, points for uh, just four things that are uh, what he believes are necessary for continued professional development. And I wrote them down on my phone. I still have them on my phone right now. And <laughs> they have, sir, I've, I have looked at it no zero times <laughs> because I have <laughs> them memorized. 
But I think everybody in the audience listening right now would very much benefit from hearing your points of, of continued personal, professional development. Number one. Number one. Wake up. That's it. That's it. But it's in a literal, figurative, and metaphysical meaning. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways to get woke, you know? Absolutely. So make sure that you're wide awake and you know what you're doing mm -hmm. and why. And the second one, maybe the most important is whatever it is, don't say it. It's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite one. And there's other ways to think about that. Uh, <laughs> you know, never miss an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Or... On no account, do anything to prolong the rehearsal. Yeah, that's a Michael Mulcahy quote. And number three, listen. That's very important. Yeah. And number four, listen better. And that's it. That's the only four things you need. Do you think if people did those four things, they would be as successful as you are? I don't see why not. Yeah, I don't see why not either. I didn't start out knowing that stuff. Yeah, that's, that's, so you could actually surpass. See, I've been, okay, here, everyone who's listening, I promise this is the end of the episode. We're just kind of rambling now, but what needs to happen is if you think you would read a book titled, Here's the Deal, and it would be a book of Jared, uh, maybe short chapters, maybe half page things of him just explaining uh, the wisdom of life let me know. Send me a message. You can do so on my website. That's not spit.com. Uh, you can find me on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Search at that's not spit. Either one of those. Send me a direct message or an email. And let me know if you think that you would want that book because I'm trying to convince him to write this book. But I bet if we had a petition of 100 million signatures, he'd probably rewrite that book. Maybe, you know, I'll give you a little teaser. You know, there's advanced techniques of, to the four points. You have not shared these with me. Well, I will. Number five, <laughs> blow the shit out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and number six, don't blow the shit out of it. <laughs> I think you have shared those with me before. There you go. Six points. Four points and two advanced points. It, those are advanced techniques. Yeah. You have to be above 18 to use those advanced techniques. <laughs> well, I think we have run out of things to talk about, so we're going to end this episode before it gets even worse than it is already. Good time. Yeah, feels like the right time. Um I always try to leave the audience with a way to get in touch with my guest. Is like your butler email, is that a solid way for people to find you? Is that on the website? Are there other ways that you could? That, that would work. Yeah. Yeah. Just my, it's just my first name, my first initial and last name, jroden at butler.edu. Yeah. So I wanted to chat about something. If you enjoyed the episode, if you want to know more about, uh, you know, playing trombone and all of these orchestras professionally, whatever amount of freelancing advice you could give, he seems to be open to um, doing that. Or if you just want to send him a message and say how thankful you are, because this is important that he let us know how to be professionally successful. I think that would be worth a thank you. So on my side of things, if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate if you went to iTunes and left a rating and a review. That would be really awesome. It helps out a lot. And then on top of that, if you wouldn't mind sharing it on social media, that would be very helpful as well. Uh, I would like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast and making it sound so nice. And most importantly, Jared and I would like to thank you for listening to this episode. Thank I, you for listening. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. <laughs>